Rooted in Revenue with your host today, Susan Finch. My guest today is Eric Whitlake, Senior Director, Strategic Marketing Initiatives at Sixth Sense. We're here to continue the conversation that we started with a few other guests about marketing in a recession and the tactics people are having to change, whether it's in budgeting, data, sales, marketing, whatever the changes are, how are people adapting with success? Wonderful. Well, you're joining me as part of this series that I wanted to do about marketing in a recession. And there's so many different pieces of it. Mm -hmm. I met with, not Keith Richard, I met with Steve Richard uh, just, gosh, a couple days ago. And we were talking about this very topic and how people are having to learn different things other than automated cadences, other than all the automation, getting back to older ways of doing it to not be the bottom 10% that gets, you know, thrown in the garbage every quarter because you're dead weight, you're an anchor, we need you out of here. And to those that can actually adapt Mm -hmm. and continue that growth, because if you've done those methods for all these years, it's worked fine. We've talked with Laura Patterson from Vision Vision Edge Marketing, and she took it from a budgeting perspective to look more at outcome-based budgets. And if you've never looked at it that way, to get off of the Mm -hmm. constrictions of line item budgeting. That you know, we're going to cut here, cut here, cut here, cut here. How about we just, what do we want to have happen? Let's rename some of these things to get the the ultimate goals that we want. And so I'm bringing you on to talk truly from the marketing perspective, because that is your big strength. And it's a different piece of this puzzle that I've been putting together. So I wanted to talk, ooh, the painful reality question that a lot of companies are having to find out and do the soul searching. Is your service or product a nice to have or a critical solution? And if you, you know, hopefully you're a critical solution because it's like I used to sell art years and years ago. I had an art gallery not a critical solution. It was a nice to have. And I had to convince people that they really needed it as a critical mm-hmm. solution for their well-being. So do people know where they are if they perceive themselves? No, <laughs> no, they have no idea right now. They have no idea because we've come out of a period of time with this brief blip where maybe they did think about it a little bit more. Thank you, COVID, for about three months until we realized that this was actually an accelerator instead of a decelerator for so many of us. We've had, help me do my math here, 14 years roughly of growth. Um, It's been a long time since 2008. And so a lot of us actually haven't had to learn very well where, and I would rephrase that question of if we are, to where we really are critical for somebody. It's because this is a critical capability for an organization or flip side, this is no longer about the market overall, but this is a critical piece to a priority they have today. And to me, a lot of this comes back to making certain that we understand our market making certain that we understand where we're likely to truly be a piece of that critical solution and where we're more likely to be today, possibly a parking lot solution. You know, we're not really 
one of those solutions they're going to pull the trigger on. And one of the things that happens in this environment is everyone goes, we're going to slow. And instead of being able to chase 16 shiny ideas, we're going to chase five really important ones. Well, here's an interesting thing that comes with that. If you're one of those five really important ones, your deal might even go faster than it used to. Because when it was part of shiny (laughs) object number 12, there just wasn't enough momentum behind it, right? And so if you're truly tied to one of those priorities, you know that that's where you are likely to find those kinds of priorities in an organization, then yes, this is going to be a really good time for you. How many companies are actually going to be in market now, though? Possibly fewer than you had before. So understanding your market so you can identify them, so you can find them, so you can respond. By the way, a lot of your competitors, depending on the position they're in, some of them might be trying to ramp up. Some of them might be becoming more conservative. Did they just let go of a third of their sales team and they don't have the same coverage they used to? In some cases, you might actually have less competition in some of these deals or less focused and resource competition in some of these deals than you had before. But the biggest issue is you've got to figure out where they are. You got to know when somebody's going to be in market. You've got to be able to pay attention and recognize that. And that's different than the broader blast approach that we've oftentimes had. But there goes my headphone. There are two pieces, though, to that. It isn't just finding out where people in market are right now. That's only a small percentage, as we know. So it's also where is that 40% that are Starting to think about it, getting research, getting geared up for when they are in market. They want to be informed. They want to stay on top of things and making sure that your marketing messaging isn't just about the sales team ready to go. It's the rest of you. Are you ready to stay up on that? Yeah. And that's why I said, I need to know where I'm likely to be a priority, where I'm likely to be a critical piece. Because it might be oftentimes that I've been able to successfully sell a lot of places where I may not be as successful selling now. And so it might be that, you know, I go, I've done really well in all of these different spaces. Well, uh, some of these spaces are more impacted and maybe they're just not as healthy as as a category. Maybe I want to stay away from those. Some of these I've been able to sell because I'm a cool solution or I'm a nice to have solution, but I've rarely been the critical solution. And maybe I need to deprioritize those segments of my market. And so that's the understanding what segments of my market to begin with, I'm likely to be that kind of fit. And then the second piece is how do I then identify the the subset of people that I really need to be on from a real proactive marketing and sales perspective. Both of those are important pieces of the of the equation here. They are. And I as people are considering cutting back marketing dollars, marketing investment, marketing time, marketing staff, they may choose to let the wrong pieces go mm-hmm. or to back burner them thinking they aren't the priority because in the moment it's not the house, you know, house on fire. And mm-hmm. I find that when they do that without remembering all those other things are there and necessary at some point you got to start bringing them back in because the longer you wait to bring those back in the more apt you are to fall way behind in the sales cycle and miss 
those cues and miss those opportunities. How do people do that if they're their first thing is cut the budget, cut the people, cut the cut what we're doing? Like you were saying, cutting the the twelve shinies down to five. You can't guess your way to quota. In these times of uncertainty, conventional wisdom tells us to proceed with caution. But Six Sense CEO Jason Zintak has another take. They're ditching guesswork and choosing to proceed with confidence. Six Sense Revenue AI eliminates guesswork and arms your revenue team with the data and visibility it needs to create and convert high-quality pipeline into revenue. Proceed with confidence in any climate. Visit SixSense.com. That's the number six, S-E-N-S-E dot com. Yeah. Well, I mean, to me, the first piece is if I can shrink what I think of as the critical part of my target market, then suddenly I have the ability to say, I don't need necessarily as much resource to have solid coverage of my market. So if I could start by going, I understand my market well enough to know where within this market I should be focused. Now I can be a bit more intentional about the cuts that I make. I can go, you know what? That piece of my market, it's just not gonna get as much investment and that's okay. Instead of starting with to something you mentioned uh, when we talked before, line items. Oh, well, I'm gonna cut search by X percent, okay. Why? How about instead, I'm going to let go of that pursuit into a hard to break in new vertical or new geo for the next 12 months. I'm going to put that on ice. That's going to save a lot of resources. And I'm going to focus on where I know I've got the best fit. Or maybe flip side, this is my moonshot opportunity. Everyone else is putting that on ice. There's a reason. There's a lot of need there. I'm going to double down and I'm going to try and make that one of my critical focuses, but I have to make that decision. The old phrase that, you know, the the art of strategy is about knowing when to say no. It's not about all the things we do. It's about being able to make the intentional choice and say no some of the time. You know, that's so true here when all of us suddenly have more resource constraints than we did before. It's about making the good decision about where to say no, so that when you say yes, your yes can have weight behind it. If I say yes to everything, then every yes gets a penny of weight instead of a pound of weight. And that's not going to have an impact for me with my market, with my stakeholders. I'm going to lose that impact that is so critical. Where do you think that companies start to slip from staying apprised as to who their market is and where they are. At what point, I think it's probably been from that comfort zone you've been talking about from the last 10 years or so, where the economy kept us afloat. So it was easier to be sloppy, Mm -hmm. to be lazy, to not go check. And I see more, to me, the companies that are failing the most are the ones that failed in that exact area, where they let it slide, they put it off. It's not fun. It's not sexy. It's not beautiful. It doesn't get, you know, a great. So they put off that research. It's like, eh, we know what it is. It's always been this. We're just going to do this because it's always been this. Why would it change? Well, it changes when the bar for investing in a new solution gets higher. So it changes when 
I can't buy 10 new things as you know a prospect. I can only buy three new things. I'm having to pick my priorities, right? So that's what made it change. But I might take a little different stance on, on how we okay. got here. I didn't need to make that decision. We had the ultimate rising tide here of a strong economy, meaning that a lot of companies could choose to invest beyond what was critical to see if there was a opportunity for them to make a difference there. And so some companies that went really broad and they grew really fast, it probably was the right decision. They probably shouldn't have narrowed down because let's face it, their definition of return was market valuation for every, I mean, I live in the world of SaaS, for every extra dollar of ARR you can get, you get somewhere between 30 and $60 of valuation. That's a pretty strong return. Why am I going to stay out of a adjacent kind of secondary fit market where when there's enough demand that I can successfully grow in that market, and I have that return of every dollar I sell is worth $60 of valuation and employees and investors and everybody else, their view of return is not, I started off my career, by the way, in oh. investment banking and dealing with free cash flow models okay. and valuation models. Our idea of return at the time was cash flow, cash flow based valuations. This was way, way back when. Today, that's not the case. Every stakeholder in the company their return is on equity. And so if I can get a dollar of ARR and I can get $60 of valuation return off of that, right? The incentive structure was to grow at nearly all costs because capital was cheap and return on revenue from a valuation perspective was extremely high. So how did we get here? I might take a little different different bent on it there. It's not that illogical how we got here. We just have to recognize how much it's potentially changed and how that means it's so much more important that we go do this work now to understand how we're going to prioritize. I love that. I was just having a conversation with somebody today. I came up with two initiatives, two things I want to target, two markets I'm going after for podcast production but taking a totally different angle Mm -hmm. and I'm excited. And I wouldn't have thought of that if I'm going along and everything's staying the same, but I'm noticing too, from where I was five years ago, I've been doing this for 12 years, the competition, you know, I feel like people are taking from my playbook. I look at it, spit back at me like, Mm -hmm. Oh, you think copycat. I've been doing that for a while. But so these new things I'm coming up with, I'm very excited about because I see their potential. I always see this potential in these ideas, and this is my time to make them happen. So like you, I'm energized by it. I know that this is, whew, and that'll carry me through for this next big chunk. If I put these two things in place, so that's what I'm working on. And it is a perspective thing. I can panic and sit in a hole and suck my thumb and say, oh my gosh, it's so bad. <sighs> and be scared and cut and stop doing and go look for part-time job waiting tables and do all those things. Or I can take the challenge and say, it's about time to stir it up again. It's time. It's a cycle. It's time to what's next. Where's the next place that I would fit in this world. Our company, our products would fit in this world. If we aren't so concrete about it, it always has to be used this way in this, how in this, how in this market. 
we can open it up. And all of a sudden, the opportunities are just pouring in. So Very nice. Yeah, it's a chance we can go back to the whiteboard and challenge some of the old assumptions we have. And, and we've got these new impetuses. We've got these new sparks for us in the feedback we see in the market, the kinds of opportunities. The fact that sometimes even what our customers tell us they see value in in our own solution starts to change and evolve. Um, and you know that goes into things about like the sales process and whatnot. Like one of the things that you likely will see is they value the thing that's more immediate right. than the thing that's long term. Now, like that's one of those things that's happening, right? But you know, to what I was saying earlier, this is now a time for change. It's not about you know, am I going to do the same thing more or less? It's that I'm going to have to do some things a little bit different. That extends into the need for us to do things to reduce the perception of risk in, with prospects of choosing our solution. That has to do with our sales process. That has to do with our marketing and establishing credibility. There's more that we have to do there because we have a higher bar we have to get over with our prospects oftentimes than we did before. So again, this is one of those things that we need to, in this time, take a look at and potentially change. I need my prospect to be so confident that they will get the return they expect. And so it's the ROI model, but also it's the level of confidence about the ability to achieve that. Uh, I love product-led growth mindset type stuff out there right now. I love what Adam Schoenfeld is doing with Pure Signal, and he just announced some cool new stuff earlier this week or um, you know, we'll see when, when this gets produced and out recently, we'll call it, but really cool perspective on what companies are, are doing. One of the things in this environment that is particularly interesting about product-led growth is the idea that I get a relatively low bar of commitment to start to have an experience with product that proves the value of that product and what it can deliver for me. Now, being able to commit is much easier because I have so much more confidence in the value that I will get from this product. I don't think that being able to accomplish that needs to be uniquely the domain of a product-led growth organization or motion. We can all grab inspiration from that. How do I ensure that my prospect going through the process comes away with that level of confidence. I talked to a couple of friends that had evaluated a company called Trade.io, cool company if you're not yeah. familiar with them. And in, in the sales process, so what they do is workflow automation. You wanna take data or input from one place and you wanna be able to automatically get that into your Salesforce, new stuff in Salesforce. You want to automatically get it into another system. You want to be able to make all of your connections between your different systems, between your different processes. Well, one thing that they had experienced in the sales process is through the course of the sales process, they didn't just demo the product or create a, a dummy instance for them. They built the first workflow. So they got to see what it was like to build it when they signed and the instance was turned live, it was already built, ready to start running for them on day one. So their time to value post-signing was shortened. 
their confidence in value going through the sales process. And this is still a sales and sales engineering facilitated sales process. This doesn't have to exist only in the world of PLG for us to be able to accomplish some of those outcomes. It reminds me of Connect and Sell is one of the, we produce a show for Connect and Sell, market mm-hmm. dominance guys. And when they do their flight school testing, it's with real data and real prospects and making real meetings. So they're almost paid to train and they're closing deals. It's the same kind of thing. It's like it. Okay. We're live and Oh, we're making money. We're already getting value mm-hmm. from this, from our time. And it's a new way of doing it. That was not done 10 years ago. It's, I love the opportunity for innovation, for streamlining, for polishing up processes, for looking for where it was messy, sloppy, could be improved. And that same excitement I had talking about those new product, but that back end piece also gets me so excited because I know we'll be more efficient, fewer errors, all those things come into place and the clients are happier and they stay longer. And then we're all happy. You know, one big happy family. I'm charged up and I was charged up at COVID though, too. I, and you know, I didn't get sick, but I was charged up that everything was going to be okay. And if the change, I was just giddy about it, you know, trying to not go into that fear place. And there's some days, okay. Yeah. There's some days like you can get a little bit down, but for the most part, this is cool for those of us that like to work, reinvent, change, improve, and serve our clients. This is fun. You had a little bit of a benefit there. You're producing and and distributing digital <laughs> content that even when I'm stuck working from home, I can consume. You're not a traveling keynote speaker as your primary source Correct. of income. So this was, though, a move that in many ways was a more natural yes. fit for your business. Yes, it's a scary time, time of change, all these things. And and it just highlights how these times of change have such different impacts. I mean, look at Zoom and the way that Zoom took yes. off and became a, became a verb for so many of us uh, over the course of a couple of years. Look at how having my camera on became standard. Yes. Like it drove those kinds of changes. I have a friend down the street and she is a keynote speaker and travels and she was building her business. It was just taking off and COVID hit and she and I just brainstormed and she went virtual so fast and now is speaking all over the world. Mm -hmm. And sometimes she flies there and most of the time she doesn't. And it has opened up more opportunities for her. And she is so grateful. She learned how to do that. From, you know, set up an office, did the same thing. We both got our offices all set up, ready to go so she can present anywhere. It, it's a lot of, um, gosh, I've watched sales training companies that were so used to being on-site only struggle. And it's sad because they're good at what they do, but they weren't ready for that, you know, that adaptation that fast. Well, and, and there's two pieces of that, I think, at least in the ones that I've seen. They weren't ready to facilitate a training on site uh, that was not on site. They wanted to be face to face to train because of sometimes the kinds of exercises they did, things along those lines, as well as the fact that it's a lot easier when I'm on Zoom for me to be kind of doing two things, right? Um, that, that 
that actually impacts, particularly for these longer trainings. Like you can keep my attention when everyone knows when my attention slipped a lot longer in a room. But then the other thing is, is many of them had a playbook that they repeated in terms of what they trained people to do. And that playbook wasn't ready for an audience that you were going to engage with almost exclusively right. remotely. Yep. So they got they hit did. twice. They did. So we can hope everybody can adapt, change, tighten it up, clean it up, and give us something new. We can't wait to see what you come up with. Right? Thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. It's been really nice to meet you, Eric. And I can't wait to share this episode with everybody on these topics. You've given them plenty to think about and to challenge themselves too. Thank you for having me on. Sure. How do you want everybody to find you? Uh, the best way to find me is LinkedIn. Guess what? I have a very unusual name. I believe there's two people in the world that, with the name Eric Whitlake. So as long as you spell it right, you will find me. And chances are, if you spell it wrong, even Google will correct <laughs> you. So best way to reach me is LinkedIn. Thank you, Elon Musk. I'm not as active on Twitter as I used to be. I don't know how long that will be a good way to find me, but LinkedIn feels like it's got some There we go. Well, thank you for joining us for Rooted in Revenue. I'm Susan Finch, your host. You can find more at rootedinrevenue.com or find more on funnelradio.com to see all the shows that we produce. Never miss an episode. Check out rootedinrevenue.com and subscribe on the site to get weekly updates of when new episodes come out. Or find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio. So go subscribe. We'll get you all the information you need to do your best with marketing and your online presence. <laughs>